My message tonight is taken from um, the book of Jonah, and God willing, I would like us to start a short series uh, on uh, this uh, prophecy. And all I want to do tonight is uh, do an introduction. So I'm not sure if I'm going to preach as such, but just uh, introduce us uh, to Jonah. Uh, it's uh, one of the minor prophets, uh, and unlike the 11 other minor prophets, what you do not have in Jonah is the actual prophetic message. Uh, most of the other prophecies have that message in them of what the prophets had to deliver. Instead, what you've got in Jonah is an autobiographical account written in the third person. So it's Jonah who's written this, but he's using the third person and he's talking about God's dealings uh, with him. And I'm sure most of us here tonight are familiar with the accounts uh, that we've got here. Uh, Jonah uh, was probably around uh, after Elisha, the prophet, and there are similarities between Jonah as a prophet and Elisha and Elijah. Uh, all three of them uh, are renowned not so much for their messages, but for the things that happened to them. And it's as if they themselves are signs of what God is trying to communicate to his people. And as with Elijah and Elisha, so with Jonah, the miraculous is very prominent. Uh, the great fish that swallows Jonah up and then not being a gardener, I don't know what the plant is, what a good is, but that is obviously a miracle as well. But we come across Jonah, not just in this book, uh, but in our reading in 2 Kings 14. So he uh, was prophesying during the reign of King Jeroboam, uh, the wicked king of uh, the north, and God used Jonah uh, to deliver a prophetic message against the enemy, who were the Assyrians. They were the superpower of the day. And the largest city in Assyria was Nineveh. And God used Jonah uh, to declare that God would give victory uh, to Israel over the Assyrians. And lo and behold, God did that. That's what our first reading was about. God used Jeroboam, the evil king, uh, to uh, give victory over the evil enemy, the Assyrians. So, this is all we're going to look at this evening. If you turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 and 2. So here is a man now who all his life has lived under the shadow of the Assyrians. They're the enemy. And he's been used of God in his youth to declare that God was going to give a victory to his people over the Assyrians. And that happened. And then suddenly, he has this commission. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah 
receiving that commission, is so shocked as to why God should seemingly change his plan. And instead of sending him to prophesy against the Ninevites, he's sending him there to preach repentance to them. And what does Jonah do? We know what he does. He's so disgusted, instead of going the way God is calling him to, he goes the opposite direction. And this is why we're looking at the book. Because it's not just prophets who have what I will call the Jonah syndrome. Is there anybody here tonight who has got the same kind of syndrome? Uh, maybe you are looking at God's dealings with people and you're just thinking, why are they being shown mercy to? They're evil people and we recoil. That, that's a Jonah syndrome. Or, or maybe God is uh, impressing something upon you and maybe calling you to do something that goes against all your convictions. And you're basically saying, I can't do that. That's not me. That's a Jonah syndrome. It's, it's a very challenging book to read. Because we've all got our preconceived ideas and, dare I say, prejudices. And we put evangelical names to them. And God is bigger than that. So what does this book uh, teach us? Um, I think one of the best commentaries on Jonah is by Sinclair Ferguson. And he puts his finger on it when he says this. We are going to look at the fish. But Ferguson says, it's not a book about a great fish, primarily. You know, that's what everybody's interested in when you're looking at Jonah. How can a whale swallow a person? <laughs> Hang on, that's not the main purpose of the book. It's really a book about God. And how one man came through painful experience to discover the true character of the God whom he had already served in the earlier years of his life. He was to find the truth about God with which he'd long been familiar in his head, come alive in his experience. Isn't that what we need? I don't know how long you've been a Christian for. And maybe, if you've been a long time following the Lord, maybe you really knew God's dealings with you when you were younger. And you still have things in your mind. But what God is saying is this. It's not head knowledge that matters, but heart's knowledge of me. And this is the frightening thing. We can have the right view of God in our head, like Jonah had at the start of this book. And yet in our hearts, when something comes against our preconceived ideas, we just recoil. We just recoil. So two things before we come to the communion. Jonah had to learn two things about God, and then I'll be done. And we need to lean, learn these two things about God. My, my first point is this. Well, can I restate that? Jonah needed to relearn two things about God. Don't you find that true in your Christian experience? When you are saved, everything is so vivid. And then what happens is we drift, don't we? We drift 
So we still pay lip service to those things that we experienced when it was all fresh. But it's now in our heads and not in our hearts. So we need to relearn these things. And I'm sure God, in his sovereignty, is putting us in situations where we are forced to do that. And the first thing Jonah, and I think we, have to relearn about God is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The grace of God. I think this is the nub of the issue with Jonah. He's struggling with the grace of God. Now you will say to me, Pastor, verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. There's no mention there of Jonah preaching grace. Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh and preach to them that unless they repented, they would be destroyed. That's true. But how does the book of Jonah end? Well, just before the end. This is what Jonah says. Uh, Verse 2 of chapter 4. He says to God, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. That's why God sent Jonah to Nineveh. He knew that. He was sending him there to preach against their sin in order that they might see their need of salvation. And isn't that what the church is all about? I think the church today is getting distracted by stopping at declaring the wickedness of society. Now, we've got to do that. We've got to uh, bring God's righteousness before people. But we don't stop at that, do we? Uh, There's a well-known evangelical newspaper and the last issues of this newspaper Uh, The first six or seven pages have all been about the evil of the times we're in. But that's not what we're about as God's people. That's not what the Lord's people in the Old Testament were about. We don't stop at sin. Otherwise, there's no hope for anybody. We lead that on to Jesus Christ as Savior. And that was Jonah's struggle. That's what he really didn't want to do. Uh, What did Mr. Hyam say? I'll have to get this right. It is one thing to know the doctrine of salvation by grace. It's quite another to know the grace of the doctrines. Have I got that right? It's one thing to know the doctrines of grace in your head. It's very different to know the grace of the doctrines in your hearts. You see, the Pharisees were sound. The Pharisees believed in their heads in grace, but in their hearts, they certainly didn't believe it. Uh, think, think of Jonah here. Uh, he had to relearn grace. Didn't he realize that when he was prophesying Uh, about the Assyrians as the enemy and God going to give victory to Israel over them. Whom did God use? He used none other than Jeroboam. Who was Jeroboam? Jeroboam was one of the most wicked of kings. And so even in God's dealings with his own people, it was grace. Jonah had forgotten that, you see. Grace. 
And where was Jonah from? Uh, he was from Gath Hefer. Does anybody know where Gath Hefer is? It's right in the north of Israel, in Galilee. And that was right near where the Assyrians were attacking the most. And so poor Jonah, as an inhabitant of Gath Hefer, would have suffered more than anybody else from the hands of the Assyrians. And this is what God is teaching him. Jonah, you of all people who have seen the evil that the Assyrians have done, and they were horrible, they were sadists, they were into genocide. Jonah, I'm going to show you the greatness of my grace by sending you to the very territory of the enemy. I'm going to send you to their largest city and I'm going to get you there to stand on the streets and to declare not just their sin, but my salvation for their sin. That's grace. Uh, I'm hesitant to use this as an example, but one commentator used this example. It's the equivalent of a Jewish rabbi being commanded by God in 1941, and we all know what was happening in 1941, to go to Berlin and to stand in the middle of Berlin and declare to the German Nazis not just repentance, but forgiveness of sins if they turned to the Lord God of Israel. Now that's shocking, isn't it? Don't you agree that's shocking? But that's grace. That's grace. A well-known Reformed Evangelical Church, I know very well, prides itself on grace. Uh, the pastor of this church was telling me how he wanted to invite somebody to preach in his church who'd grown up in the church. And this person, now a pastor, growing up in this church, was a bad boy, bad boy. In the meetings, he'd be interrupting the services. And how this person, on being invited to preach in this well-known church, turned it down by saying, ah, too many people would remember what I used to be like. And how the pastor, this is what the pastor told me, had to remind this young man, well, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's what grace is. The fact that you were like that, but God now has saved you and made you into a preacher of grace. Don't we forget it's all of grace? Grace, it's undeserving. Undeserving favour. And Lindsay Brown, who uh, was used of God to speak to a number of us in the Banner of Truth Conference, he gave this example in his travels around the world, and I don't know if there's any country that Lindsay hasn't visited. Uh, when he was in Argentina, he met a pastor, a retired pastor, who had been ministering in one of the South Pacific Islands and he'd been ministering to headhunters. Now, you can't get uh, any closer to the action than that, as it were. And this pastor said to Lindsay Brown, in my youth, I was a member of the Hitler youth movement. And he wasn't embarrassed to say that. And he went on to say, but God saved me. That's grace. And he didn't just save me, but he called me into the ministry. That's grace. And he didn't just call me into the ministry, but he called me to missionary service right at the front line. That's grace. My friends, may this church 
be a beacon of grace. May we delight in the fact that it's the grace of God in Jesus Christ that has saved us. And however bad we were before, we can say with John Newton, it's by grace we are what we are. I think it's Paul that said that. But John Newton must have said something similar. Uh, Hugh Martin, uh, God used Hugh Martin, a Cambridge uh, mathematician, I think. Uh, wasn't he a, wrang a wrangler, winner of a great prize in Cambridge University? God sent him to Persia, uh, where our Iranian brethren are from. And Hugh Martin said these words. They're very sobering. It's possible for a person, for a church, for an organization to pay lip service to grace and not get it in their hearts anymore. This is how Hugh Martin put it. When that happens, faith gives place to formalism. Contrite gratitude to cold ceremony, self-righteous pride, keeping pace with increasing iniquity in society. God deliver us from that kind of Christianity. May we be a church that, yes, denounces sin, but preaches the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. And whoever you are, even if the worst person in Cardiff was to come here, God's grace is more than much. Paul said, where sin abounds, grace Super abound. So that's the first lesson Jonah had to relearn. And I think we need to learn again and again. It's all of grace. And then my second point, and this is a very difficult one. You'll see why in a minute. Jonah had to learn that his God is the God of all nations. Jo Jonah was a Jew. And the Jews are God's chosen people. Very privileged and in the Old Testament, God limited his salvation of grace mainly to the Jewish people. But, and even Jonah would have realized this, there were times when it went beyond the Jewish fold. Uh, what about Elijah being sent to the widow of Sarephat? Sarephat wasn't in Judaism. And what about Jonah's near contemporary, Elisha? Jonah would have known about this. He might have heard about it from Elisha himself. Dealing with who? Naaman, a Syrian. Naaman being cleansed of his leprosy. God's grace, not limited to his chosen people, but as it were, spilling out to the surrounding nations. And my friends, we need to realize that God's grace isn't just for us, not just for the people outside. It's for the whole world, for the whole world. Um, have you ever read B.B. Warfield? He's not easy to understand, but this quote is, <laughs> this is what he says. We must not identify our cause with God's cause. Isn't that easy to do? Our methods with God's methods or our hopes with God's purposes. God's cause is never in danger. What he has begun in the soul and in the world, he will complete to the end. I think Jonah had forgotten that. And we forget it, don't we? We have our own little 
systems, uh, whatever you call that system. And it's as if we're trying to put God in a box of our own making. Uh, If I can say this at the risk of being misunderstood, here in Wales, we're very parochial, aren't we? Uh, There is one thing that we're witnessing in recent years, and that is the tribalism of Welsh people. I think that's behind a lot of the division in our evangelicalism. It's got to be our little group and we'll defend that to the hilts. Oh, my friends, if we really understand the God whom we serve, we will realize that he's much bigger than our particular system. Praise God for that. You know, God's way He chooses a Jonah, a patriotic Jew who'd suffered most by the Assyrians. And what does God do? He sends this very man into the heart of Assyria with the message of grace. And when you come to the New Testament, I've already mentioned Paul. What was Paul before? He was Saul of Tarsus. He was the most patriotic Jew who had ever lived. He was a persecutor of the church. He even thought he was serving God by stoning Christians. What does God do? God doesn't write him off. God takes a soul of Tarsus. And what does he do with him? He doesn't just save him. He makes him to be the apostle, not to the Jews, but to who? The very people he thought were dogs, the Gentiles. Isn't that amazing? This God who is bigger than our little systems. And in Wales, in our best times, we've not been parochial with the gospel. We've shared this gospel to all and sundry. I feel a privilege to be part of a church that has a missionary outlook. That's quite rare. Can I say that? In Wales, we are very inward-looking. But, you know, in the best of times, when God has really moved among us in Wales. The gospel has gone out. I mentioned my friend Twan from Myanmar. He grew up in the Chin Hills of Myanmar on the border with Northeast India. Do you know that region had the gospel come to it in great power after 0405? Missionaries from Wales went to the Cassia Hills and God mightily used them to preach the gospel there. And there are chapels still standing there today as a result. That's the kind of God we believe in. Uh, When I was up in Scotland, I was not far from the Isle of Mull. Has anybody been to the Isle of Mull? Off the west coast of Mull, there's an even smaller island called Iona. And in Iona, in the early centuries, there was a man, an Irishman, not a Scotsman, called Columba. And he left his native Ireland to go to Scotland. And Scotland at the time was a dark place. It was where the Picts lived. And you know what Columba did? He took this gospel, not just sharing it with the Picts, but it went as far afield as the north of England. Oh, that's the kind of God we serve. A missionary God. A God who wants us to take his gospel to all the nations. And what about today? Do do you know, which is my favourite road in Cardiff? Not King George V Drive. (laughs) I don't mind King George V Drive. There are very good neighbours there. That's not my favourite road. It's City Road. Have you ever been down to City Road? The best place to eat in Cardiff. You've got the whole world represented. On a serious note... What a gospel opportunity we've got in our day and age. 
in a way, we don't need to send that many missionaries overseas now because we've got a mission field on our very doorstep. Are we so parochial and patriotic in the wrong way that we're complaining about all of this rather than seeing it as a glorious opportunity? Don't misunderstand me. Saul of Tarsus, when he became Paul, didn't stop becoming a Jew. He was still proud of his roots. And you can probably guess, I'm still proud of being a Welshman. But let us never allow that to get in the way of declaring this wonderful gospel of grace. I remember Mr. Harrison sharing with us in Bible College how a Cardiff born and bred boy like himself wasn't called by God to Cardiff but to Newport. Isn't that God's way? <laughs> so you can think of examples in your own life. God just working against our little systems. I've got to come to a conclusion here. Uh, I've just got a few more things to mention about Jonah. Jonah came from Gath Hefer, Galilee, Galilee. The only prophets that Jesus compares himself to, I think I've got that right, Luke 11, the only prophets that Jesus makes parallels with. Isn't that interesting? Jonah, in the dealings of God with him, is a sign of what God did in the greater than Jonah. The Pharisee said, can any good thing come out of Galilee? Oh yes, Jonah did. That's one good thing. But the best thing in all the universe came out of Galilee. Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world. I want to close, if it's all right, with this illustration. There was a lifeboat station. I think it was on the northeast coast of the US. And it was a hut. And they had a lifeboat. And they had a small group of people. And whenever somebody was shipwrecked, they went out and they saved them and brought them back. They only had a rough little hut and one old boat. With time, they began saving so many people that these people wanted to join this lifeboat hut. And so it grew. And they wanted to make the building much more beautiful. They made it more comfortable. They removed the hammocks with proper beds. Uh, they put better furniture in it. And it began to look really nice. And they got so big, instead of going out themselves to save people that were shipwrecked, uh, they were able to employ people, professional uh, lifeboat workers, to do the work instead of them. And they would have meetings you could become a member and it would uh, be a club and they would have meetings. They wouldn't just send people out to save people, but they would have meetings and they would commemorate what uh, had happened. And then there was a big shipwreck 
and the professionals went out and they rescued a great number of people. And these people were, uh, they were foreigners, a number of them, and they were uh, rough and they were smelling and it was uncouth. And so they decided that they needed to build showers outside of the lifeboat building. It wasn't a hut now. It was a nice building so that these people would have to be showered before they came in to the lifeboat building. And there was a meeting uh, because this was causing tension, uh, this big shipwreck and the people that had come in and all the dirt and all of the uncouthness. And people were saying in this meeting, we, we, we don't want to be getting people in like this anymore. We don't want to be rescuing people. We, we just want to be a club and have our happy, comfortable meetings. A minority of people, they, they said, no, no, we're a lifeboat station. We're not a club. We're not here just to have little meetings. We're here to save people. And they were outvoted. And so they were thrown out. And that little group, they set up a new lifeboat station that went out and saved people that were shipwrecked. But in time, exactly the same thing happened. And that new lifeboat station became a club and there was another split. And so by the end, you had a string of lifeboat stations that had become exclusive clubs. And even though there were still shipwrecks, no one was saved because all you had were clubs. You get the application, I'm sure. We, my friends, are a lifeboat station. We're not a club. Our main purpose is to declare this saving grace of God in Jesus Christ and to get our hands dirty if need be. May that continue to be the case. Uh, what did C.T. Studd say? Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I don't want that. I'm sure you don't. I don't want religion. I don't want morality. I want, said Stud, to set up a rescue shop within a yard of hell. May God cause us, as we study Jonah, to identify ourselves with the struggles of the prophets, because it is a struggle, isn't it? And relearn the grace of God in Jesus Christ and the fact that this grace is to all peoples. For his name's sake. Amen.